0: Hey guys, Michaela here. Today's episode does come with a content warning. Since Dr. Brundage is a forensic entomologist, we do discuss the science that affects dead and decaying human and animal bodies. There's also a brief mention of genital mutilation in reference to a specific court case that Dr. Brundage did research for. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome
1: to Can I Get a Retake? where we explore the accomplishments of our innovative
0: community. Each month, we speak with one of Great River Learning's higher ed instructors and authors. Together, we discuss trends in education, areas of study,
1: and a variety of teaching styles and philosophies. My name is Michaela, your marketing coordinator. My name is Michelle, your web design supervisor.
0: And this is Great River Learning's Can Can I I Get get a a Retake? Today on Can I Get a Retake, we are speaking with Dr. Adrian Brundage. Dr. Brundage is an assistant instructional professor and assistant director of the Forensic and Investigative Sciences Program at Texas A&M University. She is a member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and works as a member of the Wildlife Forensics Consensus Body, a subset of the Academy Standards Board. Her current research involves the colonization of human remains by dipteran species, a.k.a. flies, as well as the interactions among larvae and bacteria.
1: She is a board-certified forensic entomologist and lecturer of entomology and forensics. She received a Ph.D. in entomology from Texas A&M and has worked as a forensic entomologist across North America since 1999. Dr. Brundridge consults with law enforcement agencies and private entities on cases of abuse, neglect, and death. She speaks and leads training seminars in forensic entomology across the country. Most importantly, but we're biased, Dr. Brundage is the author of The Game is Afoot, an Introduction to Forensic Science, and Veterinary Entomology. It's all fun and games until someone gets Lyme disease with great river learning. So we have a question, you know, our podcast is called, can I get a retake? Just kind of a call to some questions we get from students throughout the year. <laughs> so we wanted to ask you, have you ever been asked, can I get a retake? <laughs> oh, that is a constant,
2: a constant question. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, um, I try to build in on all my questions uh, or all my exams Here's all the extra credit and here's all the stuff, but that is pretty much guaranteed. The first question I'm going to get in my email, first question, my office hours after an exam or a quiz, or I don't know, after an eclipse of the sun, it's always (laughs) going to be a question. And I even have my frequently asked questions. The answer doesn't matter. Yes. Every day, all day, every semester. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, to jump in, can you tell us just a little bit about your background and, you know, how you got into teaching and at Texas A&M, A&M where you are now? So then I'm Dr. Adrian Brundage.
2: I'm a board certified forensic entomologist. And so I do expert witness testimony and casework and all that. And I have this firm belief that if you know or if you can do something out in the world, you should teach it because then you are actually helping those who want to do it and so it's and also i get a little rankled at that whole if you can't do teach phrase and so now i'm taking it <laughs> <laughs> being petty about it but <laughs> so because i do entomology and forensics that's what um i love teaching and uh i started at and i actually got my phd there starting in 2008 uh, before that, I was at San Jose State University, so I got my master's and then was hired on as faculty teaching biology, microbiology, um, or botany, whatever they needed, basically. And then uh, before that, I had my bachelor's at um, at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California. So I moved out to Texas for the PhD, and I was faculty one semester and then a PhD student the other for a couple of years Uh, until they found a full-time faculty to teach uh, the classes I was teaching, and then they just hired me full-time after I graduated, Uh, and I'm now the assistant director of their forensic science program, and uh, I teach the most students, it feels like. Yeah, so I've just sort of never left. They gave me an office, dug in like a tick, and I'm never (laughs) (laughs) leaving.
1: Um, can you tell us a little bit about what forensic entomology is for curious sure. Yeah, so this is the use of
2: insects to help solve crimes any science can be a forensic science as long as it's associated with the court of law that's all forensics means is associated with court so as a forensic entomologist i went that route because one it's the best subject in the world and it combines the two things i love most forensics and entomology and who knew that was a real thing so you know i found out about that in the 90s uh, but um i yeah, it's it's the use of insect to solve crime. So I get called in whenever there are bugs of some sort or closely related organisms, either on a body is where I primarily do most of my work, uh, either on a dead body or on dead animals or living for that matter, or if there's insect food or in um, somebody's house or something, whenever there's a lawsuit happening. That's when I get called in and I can tell them what I can. But my number one question is how long has this dead person been here or how long has this dead animal been here? So I tend to specialize in wildlife, that's animals, because there's not a lot of people doing that. So I get called in by a lot of um, nonprofits, ASPCA, that sort of thing, if there's been animal abuse by police departments, by the federal government, that sort of thing, asking how long has this been going on. And so I can look at the size and age of the insects and calculate approximately how long they've been feeding on that animal or body. And then that can equate to the time of death or the time of neglect or whatever it is.
0: So when you're asked by investigators to help, like, what does that look like? So what are they sending you and what are you specifically doing to sort of test for those things? It depends on the case, sort of a typical
2: case. Say I'll be called in by whomever. This can be detectives from the police department. It can be, you know, nonprofit, a vet, a um, private investigator, a private family if they needed something. Assume it's just an investigator uh, at a, a police department and it's a dead person. What they're going to do is they're either going to have me come out to the crime scene if it's close enough But it's usually hot outside. And so I don't want to. (laughs) So they just send me the stuff. And yeah, since there aren't many of us in the country, primarily we get FedExed um, evidence. And that evidence is going to be whatever insects they've pulled off the body, sometimes uh, any other weird stuff. We ask for like soil samples and and that sort of thing. I also get the uh, um, case file and photos and anything that they deem important. And um, the medical examiner's report especially is important. And so then I identify the insects down to species. And what's neat about these bugs is they are decomposers. So they're the reason we're not knee-deep in dead things all the time. You know, remember back to your basic bio, it's that whole nu- um, nitrogen cycle, the nutrient cycle in the world. We're just a big bag of carbon and nitrogen, water, minerals. And once we're done with it, it gets released out into the world for every other living thing to take it on. And insects are a huge reason that that happens so quickly. They can go through this uh, decomposing material within hours or days, depending on how big. They are also cold-blooded. And so depending on the ambient temperature, uh, they grow faster if it's warmer and slower if it's colder. That's why you don't see a lot of insects out when it's super cold out. They just can't raise their own body temperature. But they grow at this linear rate, and it is well-documented how fast they grow according to the ambient temperature. And each species is a little bit different. But once we have that data, once we know exactly how quickly they grow at these different temperatures, we can just use it to calculate by looking at the ambient temperature, use our little formula, calculate how old this maggot is. Like, Okay, this one is this age or this size. It would have taken them five days to get to this size. And then we make an assumption if we assume that those um, insects showed up really close to the time of death, which they will, they're really good at what they do. They can show up within seconds or minutes of just something needing to be decomposed, being available. And they if we assume they show up right away, we can say, well, if this person was available for colonization and they weren't in a freezer for 40 years or something, they just died right there, the flies are going to show up. So however old they are in hours or days... It's likely how long that body's been there. So mm-hmm. if a medical examiner can't tell you, I can come in and give you a range, and it's not you know down to the hour because that's not how bugs work. But um, I can say, well, this person was available for colonization between you know this date and this date, and so that can narrow this down for them. And it's information they didn't have before. And yeah, that's basically uh, what I do. And then. Other situations, it's like, well, this bug was in my food. Why is it there? And who do I sue? And so I can help them with that. I just yeah. worked one with a uh, pretty popular uh, fast food company that had maggots in there. And so much to the chagrin of my students who were helping me, I just dashed yeah. a bunch of food and we put maggots on it. And they're like, what are we doing? <laughs> and I was like, science. Uh-huh. We're doing science. I'm going to go be deposed for this. <laughs> yeah. So. It just matters the case, but they generally just send me bugs. I look at them and tell them what I can send them back.
1: Yeah. (laughs) mentions being deposed. Like, what does that look like? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's uh, there's a bunch of different steps to go into court. I mean, most of my cases don't go to court because it is such a drawn out process and a lot of people either settle or get a confession or whatever but um usually before a court case begins if there's no settlement happening they're going to court they bring in all the witnesses and you sit for a deposition it's basically discovery for the lawyers um usually whoever has hired you their lawyer will depose you first and this is a legal document so everything you say is considered um legal you know it's that so i have to prove that i know what i'm doing and mm-hmm. um make sure that they know that I am who I am. So you just bring my passport or if it's on zoom, which has happened since the pandemic. And I love this so much, man, mm-hmm. just on zoom. I just have a bunch of like certificates and awards behind me because that usually <laughs> see, it's no. me.
0: It's me. <laughs>
2: Certifications. And that makes it a lot easier. Uh, on my side, at least. And then, uh, yeah, we do, they just record everything and they just ask a bunch of questions to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. And then they understand exactly what I'm testifying to. So they'll go through my report if I've written one, ask me a bunch of questions on that. Uh, so then the lawyer gets a good grasp of that. And then I get deposed by opposing attorneys and they try to poke holes in the testimony and see what's going on. But it's it's basically expert witness testimony, just not in court and mm-hmm. oftentimes on Zoom. And so it can be really short. I've sat for a position that they asked one question and then left. I was like, oh, okay. And that was when I flew out to it. Like I had to go in person and I was like, so th- all this, okay, whatever you need, I put on makeup for this and <laughs> I do that often. But yeah. And then others, like I just sat for one that was four and a half hours as they were just trying to figure it out. This was a civil case and there was a lot of money involved. And so, yeah, they were trying to figure it out. And so I just let them argue it and I just answer the questions that are asked. So yeah, <laughs> it's basically like um, smaller court without a jury.
0: Yeah. So how do they find you? Are they Googling? <laughs> yeah, actually a lot of
2: them are. And so, you know, I grew up Well, I was a in college in the 90s. So I've got websites. So I got com, yeah. and I've okay. just kept it. <laughs>
1: and, you know, awesome. the,
2: yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, the upside of working in tech in the 90s. <laughs> and yeah. So, uh, yeah, I have that. And so people do, uh, do that. Uh, they can uh, find me. But then I do a lot of speaking tours. Like I give a lot of talks and um, a lot of places ask me just to come and talk about forensic entomology. I've got my generalized talk. So I go and do that and people get my name from there. I do a lot of trainings. Uh, so I train every year uh, investigators at the body farm here in Texas, teach them how to use insects um, off the bodies, that sort of thing. So they get to actually practice it in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I just do a lot of these sorts of interviews. And mm-hmm. and I'm, as the uh, professor assistant director at um, Texas A&M, people get to know me. So when they search Texas A&M, my name comes up and, you know. It's just mostly making a pest of myself for years. And now people know my
1: name. I
2: go to a lot of conferences and bother people.
1: Um, You know, in your title, you do talk about one of your least favorite questions from students (laughs) is the comparison (laughs) between what you do and what they see on, let's say, CSI. Um, Oh, my goodness. explain the difference between TV and the reality. (laughs) (laughs)
2: yeah uh this is something i mean it has caused a boon for uh forensic programs let me tell you in college Mm -hmm. people grow up watching all of these tv shows and they go i want to do that it looks so amazing and then they get here and we're like great take all the biologies and all the chemistries and every physics we can think of and also you have to keep a really high gpa and they're like what is happening i just wanted to look cute and be at a crime scene (laughs) Never looked cute at a crime scene, but they uh yeah, it's t v is t v and it is there for entertainment and If you were to televise exactly what I do on a case, it involves playing an audio book at double speed and putting my face in a microscope for three days, like that's what I do, and then I read some papers and then I type a bunch of stuff that is not exciting for t v <laughs> and my interns figure that out the first case they get to work but Yeah, it's everything on TV is very um, sensationalized, of course, they're taking all the absolute most interesting parts and putting them into one job. And so our, uh, you know, the biggest issues are with those basic CSI shows, and that sort of thing, because that shows things like um, expert witnesses running down uh, suspects and questioning them and like, man, I don't have a gun. I've never run down a suspect. Like I sit in my car and read a book until they're ready for me or I stay at my house and then they send me evidence to my lab like that's I don't do any of that. And uh, I especially don't wear really nice clothes to a crime scene like I wear video pants and boots that smell like death. That's, that's <laughs> my look. So it's, it's all sensationalized and it's all really nice and neat. So when you watch some of these episodes, you know, it's nothing is messy. It's uh, very much, oh, there's this one piece of evidence that broke the whole thing open. And the reality is most of the time it's very um, wishy-washy and there's no conclusion. And there are a lot of cases that go cold because there isn't that one piece of evidence. And it's, it's for sensationalism. It's for entertainment. Um, and while some of this can be entertaining, I do have some great stories, but those stories, you know, took like six months to get the full conclusion. And I put them down to 20 minutes or five minutes when I tell somebody that that sounds amazing. Sure. Yeah. It was 3000 hours of work is what it was. And You're welcome. I left all the <laughs> So, yeah, they just leave out all the boring bits. And then it gets to the point where they're doing stuff that isn't actually possible. And this is where it's honestly become a problem. There is a concept called the CSI effect that we have to take into account now when we go to court because potential jurists or witnesses or perpetrators, whatever, they've watched these shows. And so they think they know what can be done and what can't be. and they're wrong on both sides so it'll be things like um the jury will assume that there's always going to be dna evidence and it's always going to be down down to one person and it, it it was a fender bender it was like two cars there's no dna what are you doing but they want it or they won't believe it or in my case um i had actually investigators call me and they were asking for a uh for me to track down where this car was driving. What they had done is they had scraped the windshield and the headlights and taken any insect parts out of like the filter and sent me all these insect parts. And I'd asked them to send me um, through a remailer. So I didn't know where they were coming from because I didn't want to bias myself in any way. And then my job was to figure out where this car driven based on the bugs on it. And there's, you know, some um, stuff to that, but. I was able to narrow it down to the state because those are the bugs, and then possibilities of where this person drove, just based on what we have out there. What they wanted was me to show that he had driven from one neighborhood to another, and I was like, "That is like four mosquitoes and a bunch of honeybees. No, they have wings. I don't know what to tell you." And then I was watching CSI, and I found the episode where they did that, and I'm like, "Come on, you're investigators." So it's, it's easy to even fall for it when you know what's, what's happening. If it's slightly outside your area of expertise, you're like, oh, of course that's possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pretty much everything on there is no, no, they, they speed it up for TV. And I've never worn heels at a scene. And do, dear, could you imagine? And, and I don't carry a gun or question uh, witnesses. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know the perpetrator's name to try to keep my bias down. So mm-hmm. none of that i spend my life in a lab that's mm-hmm. pretty much it sometimes i get to go outside <laughs>
1: <laughs> i put maggots on doordash
2: mm-hmm. yeah exactly uh sometimes i just never go back to certain restaurants never <laughs> out to eat with an entomologist who specializes in in product stored product entomology because they're like oh yeah don't eat there they're awful don't eat there. like it's every place has a problem. We're
0: going to have to talk with you after we're done recording. <laughs> for don't know. <laughs> Well, I do want to go back to talking about bugs. <laughs> okay. Which I'm sure you're not mad about. Your research specifically mm-hmm. looks at flies, right? Yes. Diptera species as flies. <laughs> Can you explain, I guess, what you're researching or does it just directly tie into the age of the bugs themselves or are you researching yeah. anything else? Well, my research, it depends on what I'm interested in. That's the beauty
2: of my personal position or my uh, position at a and is because I'm primarily a teacher and, a, um, and the assistant director, I don't have to keep a lab with one cohesive like, direction. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my research is with students and I do research on teaching and I do research on the flies as needed. So um, and then whatever my students need to know. And so I get students coming to me asking me about that. But my primary um, area of expertise is in flies. And I did a lot of research and am doing a lot of research on the um, how flies know, one, that things are dead, because that's fascinating to me. And then I had noticed that they show up on bodies or on, on things that are dead in en masse. And there's a lot of information out there about competition and cooperation, and such in large groups in uh, insects and other animals. And it seemed a little weird at first. Why would I see thousands upon thousands of flies on something dead? Because that's what we call an ephemeral resource. It's going to go away. So that's a massive competition. And so looking into it, it's they feed as a large maggot mass and they have what's called exodigestion. So instead of like taking a bite and swallowing, they puke up their guts mm-hmm. and let it digest outside. And then they soak up the uh, um, the digestive products i guess you would call it and that is much more efficient in a huge number than it is with one or two so when a fly shows up it makes sense that they would want as many other individuals to come in be about the same age so they could all eat together and be very very efficient get the most food quickly uh rather than you know try to keep that whole body for themselves um And so what they do is when a female lays her eggs, she lays them in these clutches of about 300 eggs all glued together. So they're safe, but they're covered with bacteria and that bacteria will uh, multiply super, super fast. And other flies can cue in on that bacteria and actually figure out how old the eggs are that have been laid by hours. And so if they're within about eight to 10 hours of each other, they're all laying on, on top of each other. So I've seen, out in the field in some of our stuff, bodies that have these egg clutches that are the size of softballs. It's like 40,000 individual eggs in there. And I know that because I counted them <laughs> and <laughs> research. And so softball sized thing. But then there comes a point where no other flies come in. It's like they're repelled. And sure enough, that bacteria has changed enough that the flies come in going, oh, my, my babies are going to be way too young. They won't be able to work with these. They're going to outcompete." And so they go find another body awesome but then there's a species of fly that is cannibalistic and predatory once it gets older so it actually likes to um to come in a little bit later because it wants those sort of young ish maggots but you know not too much older than them so they can't run away so they come in about 12 to 24 hours after these and they use the bacteria and then they take advantage of the big maggot mass when they're super tiny, but when they get older, they just start eating everybody that they run into and it's amazing things. So that was my major research <laughs> and that was super fun. And then I figured out how to get rid of those bacteria on the eggs. Cause some of these slides we use as um, medical maggots. And mm-hmm. so they, they eat decomposing material on a living mm-hmm. animal or person, and it's better than surgery on these really large wounds. And you can do it in places where there aren't hospitals. And so the problem is, is if you put eggs on there, you're bringing in all that bacteria and you can cause even worse problems. So we try to surface sterilize them. But most of the chemicals we use kill most of the eggs. And then, you know, you're wasting a lot of time. So I figured there's got to be a way to do this better. So I tried a bunch of those. And then I just went looking through the closets. And I found that Lysol, just over-the-counter Lysol, will uh leave us with a ninety percent hatch rate and kills ninety nine point nine percent of the maggots on there or the uh, bacteria on there, so the maggots are fine. I mean it's it was made as a douche originally I learned for science, and so <laughs> it's tissue safe, and I guess nobody wanted to be piety fresh, but th- so you can use that and surface sterilize the eggs for super cheap. so that was part of my research. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm looking at um, how quickly insects show up on bodies in various areas and i'm trying to do a survey of forensically important flies in a bunch of different places uh for the past several years i've been down in uh trinidad with a couple of uh, students on study abroad and so we've been surveying the forensically important insects down there under a bunch of different circumstances and then seeing how they react to different things in uh, material uh, one of my students was looking at she worked at a, a a hospital i could talk about this all day so just stop <laughs> me. All right. Right. <laughs> yeah. All you right. got All me right. started not my problem so she was <laughs> looking at um she worked at a hospital and she was looking at things that were like uh what can people easily od on that isn't like hard drugs that's been looked at so Uh, She found people coming in on uh, ODing on alcohol, ODing on cough syrup and ODing on caffeine because you can buy it in pill or in powder form now. And this is a common problem in college. So we spiked um, liver basically with uh, the amount of this substance that would cause it, uh, it to OD in a human And, uh, we found that when maggots were feeding on this, so assuming somebody OD'd on the substance and died, the maggots would eat it. What would happen? And with alcohol, they slowed down a little bit in their development, but not much with caffeine it outright killed them. Like they died so fast and we're like, Oh, that's new and different. And then, uh, with cough syrup, it slowed them down a lot, but they still grew. So that was fascinating. And then whenever I have a case, I might have to uh, recreate what goes on with this case. There's one case I worked with. they were asking about uh, if cockroaches could feed on dead bodies and they do. It just looks like burns on bodies. And uh, this particular case had some inappropriate mutilation, if mutilation is ever appropriate, but, uh, the, there was some genital mutilation in this case and the guy got, um, the death penalty because of it. And so uh, the defense was, had contacted me to see if maybe the cockroaches had done that. So I had to write the weirdest report ever, which was cockroaches did not eat his penis. I don't know what to tell you. And then they asked me how I knew. Okay. And so I, um, cockroaches to myself to see if they would uh, bite me and they don't. And so I just wore those around for a couple of days. And then I got a student to help me and, uh, and yeah, cockroaches don't bite you like that. And so now we know, so it's really whatever needs to happen. I just do. And it's, it's really fun.
0: <laughs> there were so many things in there so I parse through it. Yeah.
1: I'm still thinking, like, where's the CSI episode where they elect cockroaches? Like, your life could be a CSI episode. Yeah. (laughs) Fascinating. Um, (laughs) I mean, you kind of answered part of the question we had, which is like, what implications does your research have for solving? Yeah. Yeah. There you go.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The beauty about research is, and this is what I try to teach my students, is it's just a way of thinking about the world. And (laughs) With scientists, you make an observation like, oh, that thing happened there's a bunch of eggs on this body. Uh, Why? And you just learn to ask the question why over and over and over and over again. And you get really annoying about it. And my students kind of hate it when they first get there because they'll ask me a question and I will make them try to think through the answer. They'll come up with an answer. My next question will be like, well, why? But why about that? Why about that? And they're like, ah, like I know, right? (laughs) It's annoying. But then we go and look up the answer and see if it's there you just go read your papers and you read your research and all that and if nobody has answered the question then you get to let's figure out how and so there's just so many things that we can research and it's fascinating And my students will come up with the most random things and it's a lot of fun i had one student who she just really wanted to read um fantasy books she was a senior in college she her parents kept telling her, like you don't have time to read fantasy books you got to study you got to study so she came to me with this idea for a research project where she wanted to take the major theories in ecology and biology and that sort of thing um, and see how they were represented in fantasy as part of a uh, a way to get that information to the populace mm-hmm. and because she's all yeah when I went in, when I took ecology I noticed like. These certain fantasy novels had like the biological species concept, but sometimes you have hybrids. You have a, an elf and a human that have a half elf child and what happens there? And like, how do we know elves and humans are different species that like on and on and on. I was like, great. And so we just went to the library and got a librarian involved. And then my student went home and read just so many books. And I had more videos of her parents coming in. She's like, it's for work. It's for science, I'm writing a paper. And she got to read every book she wanted that semester. It was the best paper. And the librarian loved it. And it was actually a really fascinating study. And then I had to read for work. I mean, right. You have to help. It's my job to read these new books. So yeah, they can come up with the most interesting things once they get used to this sort of stuff. And I love playing around with that.
0: Right. <laughs> well, so... Okay, I was going to go back to the maggots again, but only because yeah. one of the questions we had was how many maggots do fit in a five-gallon bucket? Oh but my that, God, yeah. Was that the same as the you know ones We're that you counted before? No,
2: it was way, 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 way more.
0: Oh my God. Way
2: more. So cranky about it. So <laughs> yeah, whenever evidence gets sent, uh, we have to put eyes on all of it. So if they send us too little, we're pissed. If they send us too
0: much, we're angry. (laughs) You know, it's like (laughs) have to be very specific. Only send us yes, five hundred or however. Oh my god, yeah. I don't need this many. But
2: (laughs) then someone will send me just like a ladybug. I'm like, thank you. I did work a case like that. I I have photos of this body with maggots all over it, and they sent me a ladybug. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Now this is the opposite of what I'm. All right. I don't know. The ladybug was there is my report (laughs) to tell you. Yeah. So it's uh, (laughs) I don't need too many. I don't need too few. I would like around uh, 300, please. Thank you.
0: So you're also a member of the Wildlife Forensics Consensus Body. You talk about that a little bit in one of your chapters. But how are wildlife cases different from humans? Are we talking about different species or Yeah. Um, well, just, yeah. Yeah. So with, yeah. With wildlife forensics,
2: it is animals, all of them. And that means you have to know more about the actual animal in addition to the insects with human cases, you know, it's with the same species. So body temperature, the same, approximately the same size. We age the same, you know, we can figure out how to, um, what drugs might be in there, where they might be, if they're clothed or not, et etc. With animals, it's a bit different. And um, since the body size can change, so you can go from the tiniest, like, tiniest, like, um, mouse or lizard or something to an elephant. And that decomposition is going to be very, very different. So with these really small animals, we get different flies that show up on them and there are certain beetles that will actually take the entire body and bury it and keep that resource away because on small animals, that competition is a real thing. Like you can't get 40,000 maggots on a mouse, mm-hmm. you know, and so they handle it very differently. Uh, and then you know, on dogs, we tend to see it uh, about the same. And that tends to be what I, I get called in on is, is dogs because they're so um, ubiquitous, uh, but there's also different insects that show up on um, them when they're alive. And so knowing the lice or the fleas or the ticks or whatever else that prefer dogs and cats and companion animals. And then if we're lurk- looking at um, oh, amphibians and reptiles, they decompose very differently. So because they're so prone to water loss, they will like shut up all their um external holes or eyes and, and whatnot, and flies can't really get in there unless they were uh, injured beforehand. And so there's a whole bunch that you have to know, and we have to be able to tell different species of animal apart. That was part of what this um, this wildlife forensics body did was, it was several years ago, there was one document we had to write on what is a species, which is Sort of the basic question in all of biology. Mm -hmm. You can't just answer that. We don't have a single answer that works for literally everything. And so we had to determine how are we going to define an animal species in court? And that took forever because it's, it's so hard to really figure that out. But it had to be written in a way where lawyers and jury and judge could understand it. And that made sense to the scientific community and that we could apply across the board. And so that's that's how a lot of these um, recommendations or all these uh, uh, rules come into being is it's just a committee of people talking about one particular thing for what feels like the rest of our lives.
0: (laughs) That's really interesting. I mean, especially like I. Honestly, even just the first thing you said, which was animals have different body temperatures. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that I didn't think about, but that would obviously impact so many things. Oh yeah. When I work my
2: ISIS cases, these are the uh um cases where maggots show up on a living body. So if you have like a wound and maggots get in there, you know, that's how we figured out about medical maggots, but it's still a thing that happens. Doesn't happen too often anymore on humans, but still pretty common or more common than we'd like. Uh, but it happens a lot on animals, of course, especially like long-haired dogs because you can't see the wounds. And mm. again, flies are good at what they do. You get the right species, though. They fly right in, eat just the dead stuff, and then leave. And so it actually helps keep the person or the animal alive and helps keep them healthy. But... um if I get, say, uh, my ISS case on a bedridden human, very common in um, bed sores,
0: mm-hmm. I
2: can figure out how long they've been there based on that person's body temperature, because that's the ambient temperature they're, the, the maggots are experiencing. Dog body temperature is much higher. Uh, any other animal, they're going to be different. So I have to go and figure out what that dog temperature is. And because I didn't go to vet school uh, when I first did this, I had to reach out to a bunch of vets and make sure I was correct. I wasn't just making something up or. Yeah. looking at the first hit on Google or something. And that's going to be different for every other animal out there. And so it it significantly affects that. And when I'm saying something like this, the when I'm giving a report on myiasis, they're asking how long has this animal or human been neglected? You know, because they had to have a wound, it had to go septic, and then the flies had to show up. Even assuming they showed up as soon as that wound got infected, that's still long enough to get a wound and not be treated. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really important thing to get right. And so I have to be very, very careful. And I'm often as conservative as I possibly can be because I don't know what the situation is Mm -hmm. and I had better not go out on a limb because that could mean the difference between going to prison or not for somebody or having that animal put down or not or whatever. And so that's a big issue. And so, yeah, it's. Everything is different and it can significantly affect the outcome.
1: And they're high stake and high stake implications. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And that's that's what I try to impress upon my forensic science students is I don't care if you think this is sort of the silliest calculation or whatever. Somebody's life is literally going to be in your hands, Mm -hmm. just whether it be their freedom or a massive fine or going to jail forever or whatever it is. Uh, you are will affect their lives. And so you had better do this right. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: No matter what. (laughs) I don't care if you think it's boring, do it right anyway. And don't be that person. And don't be a gun for hire and say whatever somebody wants you to say, because I will come for you.
1: (laughs) I do like a part of your textbook where you say, you hope some of your students will answer the question, what do you do with I'm a forensic scientist? Yes. Um, so what are the different career paths that are available to these students? Oh man. <laughs> oh, it's so I mean our classic
2: forensic scientist is working at a crime lab. And that is the you know, the people who are analyzing the evidence and giving out those reports and matching DNA and all those sorts of things. And um that is what A lot of my students try to do, but then we can also go into the actual crime scene investigation. So you're the one at the scene collecting the evidence. And depending on where you work, you could be the CSI and forensic uh, scientists analyzing it, or you send it to the lab. It just depends on the size of the place you're working. So there are some places where it's hey, you are the CSI and the forensic scientist and also the secretary who checks some people in. And then sometimes you do these 12 other things because it's such a tiny place, you know. So forensic scientists are pretty good about um, multitasking and being able to do a lot of things. Yeah. But then you can go to be an expert witness in whatever field. So like I went on to entomology in order to be board certified for that, though, I had to get my Ph.D. and I had to do several years of internships or um, training under Entomologists. Then I had to send in a packet to the American Board of Forensic Entomology, and then I had to sit for a 12 hour exam to prove that I actually know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I have to re up every five years. And this is the same uh, type of thing that pretty much every other board certified forensic expert has to do. So for anthropology, they have to do the same basic thing like fingerprint analysis. Uh, microscopy, uh, engineering, whatever. Any science, you can be a forensic scientist and there's probably a board that governs it. If you want to be a forensic pathologist, you have to be a doctor first and foremost. And then you do your rounds in pathology and autopsy and that sort of thing. If you want to work in uh, veterinary forensics, you have to be a veterinarian first and foremost. If you want to be a forensic odontologist, you have to be a dentist first and foremost. And so it's basically you have to go in and be an expert in that field or as close as you can be. And then learn how to apply that to the crime scene. So the more specialized you get, the higher up you need to go in education, the further on you need to go in education. And then the more narrow your focus becomes. So it's usually my my bachelor's students and my master's students that go into the crime lab or go into CSI or something like that. So there's a lot you can do. Oh, I have ex-students who have started their own labs. One of them just started a crime scene cleaning business, which is where all the money is apparently. And I'm really upset I didn't do it myself, but she wanted to live in California and she figured that would be the way to do it. And she was correct. Dear Lord, (laughs) she is. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's just pretty much anywhere you go, there's going to be something you can do.
0: Do you have any advice for those students that want to sort of follow your path?
2: Oh, man. Decide what you want to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, because again, it's, if you want to
2: be an expert witness, like an entomology, you've got to plan for a PhD. Oh, yeah. You know, if you want to work at the crime scene uh, I would suggest doing um, things like chemistry and biology and physics chemistry is especially important in crime labs. I mean, our students basically minor in chemistry and we have a plus one master's program with another university where if they graduate from us, They've already taken all the chemistry that they would take their first year of their master's program. So they can go for just a year, take a few specialized classes, get their master's in one year instead of two or three. And so they just you take a lot of chemistry uh, for that. But um, yeah, I think it's decide what you want to do. Really look up a job that you think is your dream job and see what they're requiring, because it can be very, very competitive out there. And so you want to set yourself up as well as possible um and then do internships and volunteer as much as you can that's really how I got my start in forensic entomology was I worked a cold case with my advisor and went I'm never not doing this I guess and so then I uh went to every conference possible so people should go to really network that's how you get everything uh go to all these conferences and that's how I met some local PD and the local medical examiner and then I just made a pest of myself. And I just called them and bothered them. One whole summer, I just spent hanging out in the waiting room of the medical examiner's office being like, if you have bugs, let me know. And I just (laughs) had a lunch and a book. And I think they just felt sorry for me. And that's how I did my first independent case. They didn't even really need it. They just got tired of me eating a sad sandwich in the waiting room. And then, um, so then that's how I got casework. And then I just started giving talks everywhere and volunteering and a lot of volunteering. And so that's how you get to know people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, know that there isn't any one way to get where you want to go. So, you know, I wasn't the best student, I'm ADHD and severely dyslexic. And, you know, I grew up, I was in the eighties. So dyslexia, ADHD, wasn't really a thing you diagnosed. You just had to go home and memorize, um, spelling words and then fail a spelling test every week and get detention. Not that I would know, not bitter, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I learned how to not study in high school and just sort of, you know, did fine. And then in college, it just kind of squeaked by and got to grad school and you can no longer do that. So I got my butt handed to me a few times, <laughs> uh, almost failed out, figured everything out. So I, I like to tell my students, I, I want you to get your butt kicked early as opposed to later, please. I will try to do that to some extent, but don't wait until you're in grad school like I did. But um, even if something doesn't work out, if you don't quite figure it out soon enough or you fail or whatever, there are alternative ways of doing it. There isn't ever just one path and grades are one way. If you do really well in school, have high GPA, do everything perfectly, that is one way to get where you want to go. There are a million and one other ways. They might take way longer. They might look very different. You might have to forge that path yourself, but it's for what you need in your time. And if you want to do something, you'll get it done. Mm -hmm. It just may not look exactly like everybody else. So do what is right for you at any given point. This is usually what I tell students who failed their first class in college, because it's hard. I know. And especially if you're coming from a small place and you're used to everybody, suddenly you're in this huge area where and on your own for the first time, and it's really hard. And so there's a bunch of different ways uh, to do that and really lean into your strengths. I also suggest everybody take a theater class if you're going to go into forensics, because man, that has served me better than anything else. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So well, first of all too, I had a thought just that trying to tell a college student to figure out what they want. I know. I Personally, know. for me it was, is a lot because I did not figure out what I wanted to do. Yep. I've done a lot of different things, including teach biology and anatomy and physiology for high school students. So I wanted to I just wanted to ask, so, on animals, on humans, we have bugs on us when we're alive. Yes. When we die, do those bugs die as well? Or are they then yeah. competing mm. with the flies that are colonizing? Well, it depends on the bug,
2: of course. Okay. But for our, our ectoparasites, like our lice, the mm-hmm.
0: mites that are
2: on us, if the like, animals have fleas, whatever it is, yeah, they need a living host. And, um, That means as soon as the body temperature begins to dip, they're going to get out as fast as possible. Uh, Mm -hmm. If it is something like a bot fly, which actually the maggot embeds in the skin, they can die if they are not big enough to survive um, after they leave because it's so hard to find a host. Fleas can get pretty quickly off and they will literally jump ship as soon as that body temperature dips a little bit. And -hmm. they're really good at surviving in the the wild. Lice, this is fascinating. So uh the lice, especially head lice on humans, they will lay eggs, you know, on their their hair shafts, Mm -hmm. uh, and they can regulate the temperature that the eggs experience by laying them closer or further away on the head shaft. And so we found that they lay pretty well a consistent um, distance from the scalp when the human is alive. But if that human is dead, they'll start laying closer and closer to try to pick up that body heat that Mm -hmm. is left as the body, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, cools down through alga mortis. And so um, I don't know if we've mathematically figured out the um, the formula to figure out how long a person's been dead from that, but there's the possibility. So it's a definitely a significant change. So yeah, either they like jump ship and they try to leave wow. or they try to use stuff. And if it's maggots, there are some that can live on both living and, and dead humans, some that can't. So it really just depends on the thing. Yeah.
1: I could have my own slightly yeah. off. too, which is, you know, with kind of the the climate shifting, are you noticing migration patterns of insects moving? And is that research? Yeah, that is actually
2: one of the reasons that entomologists tend to be on the forefront of climate change um, research is because insects have a uh, preferred temperature, And they can go a little bit around it, but if it gets too hot, too cold, whatever, they cannot survive in that area or they have to hybrid or something. And so that means that these insects that that traditionally like it really, really warm used to just live right around the equator in these really warm areas, tropical areas. Now they're starting to move more and more north and south into more temperate areas. Now, most of our disease carrying insects are in those tropical areas. And now they're starting to move. And so we're starting to get mosquitoes carrying disease go further and further north. We're starting to get ticks, the same thing like Lyme disease. We're watching this really closely because Lyme disease is spread by the host animals as they carry the ticks. So it's officially spread by ticks, but you know they're tiny and they can't really run that far. But if they get on a deer, say, they can go super far. And so we're watching as their main deer host, the white-tailed deer, its range is expanding exponentially now. And then they're moving into areas. And some of those areas, the ticks died because they just couldn't handle it. Now they're much more temperate, they're nicer. And so the ticks are surviving and spreading more Lyme disease. And that same thing is happening with all these different diseases. And there are some insects that, um, you know, we get a lot of invasive insects as we move back and forth. Some they would invade and just die because the temperature wasn't right. As the climate changes, they're finding more and more places to survive. And that's why we're seeing more and more like d- dramatic um, issues. Like during the pandemic, there the whole thing with the murder hornet came out. And I mean, that has moved around quite a bit. It's just, it found a place where it was able to survive for a little bit. And it wasn't able to survive forever. Oh, it was back. And, um, but they uh, are surviving much longer than we would like because they can cause a real problem and so we're just we're watching that happen and it's going to get worse and worse in places where there were certain pests that were never a problem they're going to become a problem and people are going to get sick and animals are going to die and it's all that and so yeah it's the that is the major issue from our end is we're all going to die is pretty much how we always think in our head
1: yeah (laughs) we're fun at parties same here. I mean, don't they call malaria like humanity's deadliest killer for yeah, because yeah, because there are so many people
2: in um you know the malaria belt, that area where the um people are susceptible and there's a reservoir host in animals and the mosquito lives. And we have the disease I mean it used to be endemic here and we got rid of it. And every once in a while, we do have a lo- We do have local transmission of that disease because we have the vector and the animals and the humans and everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's primarily in places where all those things work together, which tend to be clustered around the uh, equator and other warm areas as we're getting further and further north or further and further south. They're going to move because they have wings. They're good at it. And yeah, it's we're starting to see that area expand. And that's why everybody was uh freaking out years ago about this. All the entomologists were like, we're oh no, oh bad no. Uh but then it's also why that that RNA um vaccine that was developed for COVID, we're all excited about because there's so many viruses that mosquitoes carry or other insects carry that we haven't been able to get a vaccine for because of a variety of reasons that might be fixed with this RNA stuff. And so things like dengue fever, uh, we haven't been able to do a vaccine over that. And the RNA looks super promising. And so we're super excited about that because that's even deadlier than malaria. And uh, as climate change comes in and they expand, we're all going to get it. And It's called break bone fever for a reason. And we don't want that. We're yeah, against yeah. it in general. So, yeah, there's all manner of things that go into it. It's crazy and terrifying and
0: exciting at the same time. Right. This Gosh. is why we
2: all drink. We drink a lot.
1: <laughs> you know, we, we uh, a couple of podcast episodes ago, we um, talked to some people in horticulture and they were talking about their own, you know, concerns with migrant change, com- migration and climate change mm-hmm. happening it's a thing for sure yeah, the <laughs> agricultural community is like oh god yeah. yeah 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 sorry i think kind of minimalizes it yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe to i guess not change the tone but Keep talking. Just, we're just, just random ridiculous. random yeah. questions now yeah that'll be the best podcast it's four hours so excited <laughs> cause cause questions back and forth <laughs> Um, well, you know, you do have a chapter called "True Crime Buff, Buff Chronicles." I yes, so, do. You do. As, as someone who has extensively researched real life crimes, what particular true crime kind of fascinates you? Oh man, <laughs> um,
2: I. Personally, like the stuff that is has some unusual aspect to it. I mean, if there's an entomologist involved, of course, I'm always going to be on board with that. But if something is unusual, um, I like that a lot. Uh, Like I was glued to my TV set for that uh, the Daryl Brooks trial this past fall because he represented himself. And I teach an expert witness testimony to pre-law students. And like that is a uh it's like a a case of don't do this oh my god but it was amazing and there was so much interplay there between the judge and the prosecutors and the uh, defendant and all that it was really fascinating to see all that how that worked Um, And then, of course, you know, as forensic scientists, we're all bloodthirsty, I think. Uh, Anybody who's into it, we're all bloodthirsty. My students, super bloodthirsty. So one of the questions I always ask them is, like, who's your favorite serial killer? And you can usually tell if somebody is going to do well in forensics or be into this if they're like, oh, it's X, Y, Z. But then my second one is this and this is why. And then someone else is like, what? Oh, you're not one of us. Okay, no, no, you're fine. You'll do great. Yeah, you're going to change your major. I figured. Yeah, I know. Uh, But yeah, so it's it's. Those of us who are into this, yeah, it's usually for me, it has to be something unusual, either a high body count or a really weird method, or just yeah. something that affects something I care about, or you know, whatever. And then every once in a while I get into stuff that would make a really neat lesson for my classes or something interesting to write about in the book. I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna add this. So I have a whole series of notes on my notes app between like add to lectures or add to textbook on things that i just see and then i just deep dive into those and that um yeah and i my first day of class i always ask what's your favorite serial killer and then is there something on here look through the syllabus is there something that i'm not covering that you want to know about and Mm -hmm. uh, i've been doing this for long enough that usually i've covered most of the stuff but every once in a while a student will will text me or, or come up to me and have a question or have a request about something. Or like last semester, I had a student come up, like, you know, my aunt was a victim of a serial killer. What now? You're coming to my office. Hi, tell me everything. <laughs> like, and so and they love telling those stories when they're forensic scientists. Uh, Mm -hmm. Otherwise I just don't hear about it. So it really just depends on that. And then if it's something that would be really interesting to write about or to talk about, I really pay attention. And so, yeah, that's how I get a lot of the content is just news stories like, ooh, ADHD is pinging. I'm gonna go (laughs) on a quick hyper-focus for the next two months.
1: Wow. My design team, maybe their true calling was, was a yeah. forensic entomology because they are listening to morbid
0: 24 seven. I'm going to be yeah. honest. I do too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's yeah. It's a certain red handed. I mm-hmm. like red hand. We're yes. talking about
2: podcasts. <laughs> It's a certain type of special special person that loves this sort of stuff the way that we do. And yeah, it's I really think it's it's that intellectual curiosity and that um that need to understand what happened, why. It's that asking mm-hmm. the question why over and over yeah. again. And so it, most people who do this are pretty much born scientists. Like why did this happen? But why? But why? <laughs> and a lot of the uh the true crime buffs are uh that they ask that all the time and
0: you make the best scientists so yeah you two should just be scientists what are you doing take my class <laughs> so many different types of science as well yes. right mm-hmm. you know psychology yeah. and social psychology but also forensic science all different types yeah. of literally science. everything and it's just applied exactly.
1: yeah
2: i mean heck we've we've brought in um, artists and things into the forensic scientists, um, sciences for various reasons. And I mean, one of the most uh, called for ones right now is that facial reconstruction. So you have to be an artist in order to do it because you need skills, but it's that molding of the face from the underlying bones in order to give a face to say a skeletonized body. And mm-hmm. artists coming to that are like, oh, I didn't know I could do this. Yeah, oh my God, yes or uh yeah for life drawing or that sort of thing or um art theft is so freaking huge so art historians oh, yeah. are in desperate need and like all manner of stuff like that it's pretty much any anything you're into you, there's a forensic science for it that's beautiful
0: <laughs> now that i'm thinking about it as well i'm actually reading
2: a true crime book
0: <laughs> uh-huh. what are you reading what are you reading Um, it's a Louise Penny book, so it's fictional. It's not a.
2: But what is it? What is it? Which one is it? I've read all of hers.
0: Oh, it's only the second one. I just start. I just discovered her. So. Oh my god, it's so good, and she has so many. I read read the first one, Still Life, in two days. Uh (laughs) Now I'm on the second one.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Yeah. I read crime like there's no tomorrow. Like that's just that is what is in my ears.
0: (laughs) Mysteries are Mm not where my
2: yes
0: the silly little lovely, mystery, but also you get the the police aspect mm-hmm. so I like sometimes that. a recipe at the end or how to knit something and that is the best i mean poetry and right poetry. so good so good highly recommend <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh, well, well and we were talking about a little bit about your book you mentioned mm-hmm. um, what's something that like a student has suggested that you've added oh you should... my goodness mm-hmm. um Pretty much any time
2: I have a serial killer mentioned in there, I have that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the forensic psychology sections since I'm not a psychologist, it was really small, but I have a lot of students really wanting to go into that. So I had to do a deep dive into that. And actually, one of the chapters is a guest uh, author from a forensic psychologist because I wanted to make sure that the information was um, real. So I have a couple of chapters, one on, you know, like serial murder and that sort of thing, sort of the facts. And then I have it, a chapter from the forensic psychologist from that perspective so that students know exactly what to expect and what to do. Uh, and then I have him come in and usually give a guest lecture as well when possible. Had students ask for uh, fire Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, again, I'm not, um, I wasn't a fire expert. I did a lot of work on that lately, (laughs) but somebody wanted to go and be a fire marshal and do that sort of thing. So I went, all right. So I wrote an entire chapter for them. Um, I've written sections on uh, things that they're going to learn later on. So there's a whole section in there on DNA and expression of genes and that sort of thing. And I wrote that because the student came back and said, well, I'm in this class and I don't understand this particular concept and I really wish you'd you would you'd be able to explain it to me. And I'm like, well, I can if you want, so I did. And then I went, well, okay, they still have access to this book, so I just wrote it in there so they could go and, and do that. And then anytime I hear a student, cause they'll, they'll come to my little office suite and just sort of hang out in the lounge. And if I hear them complaining about something they don't understand, I put that in the textbook. Uh, if it's something that I know they're gonna learn in another class, that maybe that professor doesn't want to spend two weeks trying to get them to remember what they learned years ago, I'll put it in the textbook. And so I ask a lot of the uh, other professors as well, what do you want them to know coming in? And over time, I've had professors come in and say, students didn't know this concept. They didn't understand what a model organism was like, okay. And then I just find a place to put it and it's in there. And then the other professors can all say, I know you know it because it's in the book because I watched her write it. Mm -hmm. So it's on this page. Go look
1: it up.
0: (laughs) And so,
2: yeah, it's really
0: uh, pretty much anything
2: I can put in there. And I do.
0: Do you cover all of those concepts then in class, too? Or is it more like a resource they can go look at? Uh, It's it's a little bit of both. So the way that I've designed the text
2: is I want it to be really broad background for everything I'm talking about. And then um, the idea is the students will read the assigned chapter. They'll get their first exposure to this entirely large concept, like say it's forensic DNA. Uh, and so I have a DNA chapter. I want them to read it. Uh, since I don't know what their background is necessarily in this class, I try to assume they don't know anything and I want to get everybody up to the same level. So some students may read this, it's the full review, whatever. Other students, this might be the first time they've truly read it. So I read it that way and I put in as many of those deep dive basic concepts as I can. So we go over bonding, hydrogen bonding for DNA. We go over RNA, DNA, et cetera, you know, protein expression, like everything. And then... Um, In class, I talk about the most important stuff for the class. And then that way they have this really broad background. And then I focus in on what is necessary in class. And we have a very limited amount of time. But then if there are major concepts or things that I really want them to understand, that is in the textbook. And I could say, well, if we don't have time in, in lecture, I can say, go and read this one section of the textbook very closely, because you're going to need this to understand the next three things. And then I build in like they have to practice it. And so um, it's designed for that prepping their brain to hear it in class. And then if they read it a second time, they really know what's important. And then I make sure I go into depth on a lot of the uh, foundational principles. I call them in my class. So things like with DNA, a foundational principle is, um, is bonding. And so hydrogen bonds versus everything else, because that dictates the melting point of DNA and how much energy is needed to break apart those base pairs in order for transcription and all that. So I want them to know that because then we can calculate how much heat it's going to take to melt apart DNA. And that's something they do every day in a crime lab. Mm -hmm. And so any of those foundational principles that They really need to know to apply this. I make sure it's in there. And then they can come back to this later on in their careers or whatever and Mm -hmm. look up these foundational principles or in another class, if it's something they go, you should have learned this last semester. They go, oh, wait, no, it's in the text. Okay, I can go and read it real fast. So I just try to touch on all of those, focus on the forensic science aspect, but then allow them to use this as a reference.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. And the ability to be able to make those quick changes. Oh, that has want. changed
2: everything. Mm-hmm. So, you asked me before why I decided to do uh, a digital text like this. And that was really the number one reason. When I first started teaching, you know, the, the standard is you have your textbook. You choose from some catalog somewhere. And most of the time, we just start out with whatever textbook has been used when we took over the class or whatever one we find on Amazon or whatever our bookstore on campus has, you know, and then you go through it and you find the readings that are appropriate. And as I was going through my classes, as I teach both veterinary entomology and forensic science, and I've written a digital text for both of them. And as I was going through that, I found that there was no print textbook that was perfect. I would always have to be like, okay, go buy this textbook and then buy this other book, or I'll find a bunch of papers to post for you or go to library. Like, and it was just this mishmash of things that I made them do. And then every year it seemed like, especially in forensics, that textbook would be rewritten to a new version and then they would uh, have to buy it new again. And uh, at the university, you know, if you buy a written textbook, you can sell it back for a fraction of the price or whatever, but at least you get a little bit of money back. But you can't do that if there's a new version out. And so and these every year it was getting more and more and more expensive. And so students were spending just thousands of dollars on textbooks for all their classes. And they might be the person who doesn't really read it or, you know, or they're on a limited income. So they have to choose which one to get. And to ask them to buy a $300 textbook every semester and not know if they're going to be able to sell it back. And if they're not going into forensics, maybe they don't want to keep it. Maybe they're just taking this for funsies. Or uh, if the the uh, world changes, then suddenly it's obsolete and it's just sitting there. And all of that was an issue. So between the money, um, the, how quickly these subjects change and that ability, I can update this text in real time. So like uh, a few years ago, I have in one of my chapters um, some information about Charles Manson. He's one of the most popular serial killers when I asked students. So I wrote something about him, but um, he was in prison and one year he got engaged and that was fascinating to watch. So I immediately added that. And then the next year he died in the middle of the semester. And so, you know, like I had in that textbook, he's still in prison. He's up for parole this time. So I was able to go in that day and change it. He died on this date at this time in prison, you know, and so it was immediate real information that had just happened. None of that like, no, this is an old book type of look. It's, nope, this is new, and it just happened, and now it's there. And that change can happen within minutes. It's so fast. And so I love that. And then the book is up to date, Mm -hmm. and students can keep it and read it forever, and then they'll get pushed any new updates that I give them. So even if they took it you know, last year, two years ago, whatever, whatever is new in there now will be in their textbook. And so... I know that these future forensic scientists have the most up-to-date information, which makes me feel a little bit better
1: mm-hmm.
0: about
2: the world in general. Really,
0: <laughs> well, and not just the most up-to-date information about serial killers, but also oh yeah, most everything you know, right for all of the other different forensic science chapters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there's so much constantly coming
2: out. There's new mm -hmm. cases that set precedent. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, new Supreme Court rulings. There's new all this stuff. Uh, And whenever there's a new uh, technology or some new way that technology was used and it's been published in one of the journals or something, I can write that up immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there's a new challenge against old stuff, you know, like um, fingerprints lately have been subject to um, legal challenges because we really don't know the statistics behind it. We don't know how likely it is that someone else is going to have the exact same fingerprint as you. We've just never done it. It's just one of those um, traditional things that it was said back in the day, therefore it is. Mm-hmm. But now it's being challenged a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of crazy stuff going on around it. So I want those challenges to be documented so that students know where they stand and how to make this, um, their evidence stronger when needed. And so, yeah, that sort of thing. It's really easy to change that. Yeah. And I love that.
1: And that goes into the implications of your work. You know, people mm-hmm. have gotten the death penalty for outdated arson information. You know, absolutely. The, the you yeah. change it on the fly. It's not only helpful mm-hmm. for the students, but potentially the people they're helping to defend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And as, if they have the best
2: information, then they can do their best work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's just a lot of problems. Out there with um, you know incorrect convictions or outdated information or incorrect uh, analysis of that information, and then when that finally comes to light, now you know the state or the federal government or whoever are on the hook for that because they incorrectly incarcerated somebody and they need to pay for that, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's it's a lot of that going back and forth, and so yeah, it's one of those things where it's um, I do not want to train students badly. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a general rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, um, do you have they're... any advice for someone who's starting to write their own material or their own textbook?
2: Yeah. So the way that I wrote both of these books was um I had to lock myself away uh <laughs> for several weeks to get it all done. And so I just I basically just went and rented a cabin for a month and just sat there and I worked within my own um, uh, circadian rhythm. I'm a night person, you know, and so I was like getting up in the afternoon and drinking a lot of coffee and staying up until five or six a.m. and then going to bed. But that's when I would get my best writing done. I just had it set up where there was nobody around, you know, brought my husband and my dogs and then I just focused on writing. There was nothing else to do. Um, and so that got the bulk of it done for me, but what I did before that was I did a lot of prep. So I looked at how I was designing my classes and how I was designing the material and then thought about, okay, why am I teaching on what I'm teaching? Again, I just asked that why question a million and one times. And then I went out and asked the other professors, what do you want them to know? I asked previous students, what do you wish you had known? So, like for my Vet Ento book, I reached out to a bunch of my uh, vet students who had been in my class and then have gone on to vet school, reached out to a bunch of um, students who are now veterinarians. And I asked them, what do you wish you had known going into vet school about bugs or anything? And they gave me this laundry list. But mm-hmm. okay, well, I'm covering at least that. I did the same thing in the forensics book. And then I went through and uh, thought about where do our students go? And so I checked the job uh, boards and said, okay, they need to have XYZ knowledge. Okay, let's make sure that's included and then I have very strong opinions about things. So I added all that. And, and so I just sort of created this outline of here's what needs to be in here. Mm-hmm. And what's nice about the digital text is I can use color photos For, you know, no extra cost. It's not like I have to find a good black and white photo because it's going to be printed. I can use uh, links to places. So there are places I link out to like YouTube videos of stuff if needed. I can put in uh, custom graphics. So I did a lot of like graphic design on my iPad and I'm not great at it, but, you know, it worked with shapes. So I could get the exact graphic I wanted um, or I could use pre-made graphics from other places, you know. and I I was able to add all of that. And then there was no real page limit. So I could just write to my heart's content. <laughs> and I've written other chapters and other things like in print media before. And a lot of times they're like, this needs to be this many pages or less because it's going to be printed. And you're trying to cut down what you want to say. And as you know, I'm very verbose, obviously. And so my writing reflects that. I just don't edit that. So I want the students to hear this in my voice, basically. And uh, so I write the way that I talk. And um, that does not lead to very short material. <laughs> and so this made, I could just write forever. And then as I was writing, I would come up with ideas. like, oh, I'm writing this concept. But for somebody to come in and really understand it, they need to know this other stuff. Like there's a whole chapter I have in there about statistics and that wasn't originally on the plan. I was writing the DNA chapter and I was talking about, you know, it's a one in what a 15 trillion chance or whatever it is now that someone else randomly has your DNA. And I'm like, well, how do we know that? How mm-hmm. well, did the students know this? Oh, No. I'm going to write another chapter. So then I just like took a quick hiatus and wrote another chapter real fast, slotted it in and then went back. And then as you're writing, you can refer back to those chapters. Like, I know what I wrote. I just wrote it. So and so that made it really, really flexible and really, really nice. Uh, Yeah. So it's that sort of thing. Plan it out as much as you can. Um, You can take whatever time you need to do your due diligence and figure out what needs to be out there. But remember, you're the expert and you're writing this for your purposes. So I wrote it specifically for my class. This is what I want them to know. Therefore, this is what they're going to know. And, um, that made it really easy. And then I wrote it in my own voice. I didn't try to make it like when I write, uh, publications for scientific, uh, publications, you, you make it sound sciency, you know, you use the big words and all that. And I learned with these textbooks, and I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make the jokes. And I'm gonna write as I talk. And I'm gonna, you know, go off and tell stories on the side. And I have a whole series of footnotes in there. Because I do things in class where I give like little side stories. And it's just whatever pops into my head. I'm like, Oh, I want to tell you this. It's funny. Mm-hmm. And so those I made into footnotes. And that works really well, because it doesn't interrupt the flow. But Students can go and get my jokes and there. And there's one chapter I'm in like a, a footnote fight with the uh, guest author, and that was funny for us. And then the poor editors were like, "Uh, do you want us? Do you want this in here?" I'm like, "Yeah, no, it's fine." And they're like, "Okay," because it looked like a real fight. <laughs> That's amazing. It worked. So yeah, write in your own voice, plan it out, and it's it's yours for your students. And right. so you have this maximum flexibility. Use
0: it. Do you feel like you've noticed a difference in your students? You know, do they like the text? Oh, man, a- they read it so <laughs> much. Yeah, especially the forensic science
2: students. And they keep it um, mm-hmm. f- forever, it feels like. And so I will get students coming in and making jokes about the jokes I made in the textbook. Mm-hmm. And um, students will read this um, willingly, which mm-hmm. makes me happy. Because yeah. uh, I, I don't like reading boring stuff personally. So I tried not to be boring when writing. But yeah. And, um, they're much more willing to buy it because it's reasonably priced. They can get it instantly. There's no back order. Uh, it updates constantly. So they feel like it's, it's less of, I'm just buying this thing for 15 weeks and then it's going to be the most expensive, uh, I don't know, book stand ever or something, but, uh, because it's constantly updated and uh, they can use it in perpetuity, uh, they feel like it's an investment more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And, um, a lot of them have my same sense of humor. So they like seeing something written where um, they would make the same jokes and sort of get side-eyed by their family and friends. And so they like reading it in public around normies, as we call them, the non-forensically bent people. Like, what are you reading? No, it's just about dead bodies. What are you reading? (laughs) Coffee shop with their computer, their tablet, and it's just body pictures. And they love that. Yeah, and and that's another thing with GRL is they're so good at uh giving us uh or giving me pretty much whatever I asked for. I could do some crazy thing like, hey, I'm teaching this random class online, can have a section. They're like, Yeah, done. But, oh, we're not even off the phone. Okay. That was amazing, you know? <laughs> okay. And yeah, and I'm able to get uh access codes for, you know, I've got students who are going through some tough times or, you know, I've got students, a couple of homeless students and things like that. So if students cannot afford something, I'm allowed just to give them a, an access code. And I've had students who, you know, are taking care of their family and, you know, their, their parents are in the hospital or they're going through cancer treatments or, you know, it's something. And they just do not have the money to buy something else this semester, but they want to finish their degree. And so I'm able to just hand over access and nobody gives me any problems for that. It's just, I call up and say, Hey, I need a couple of things like, okay. Mm -hmm. And it's done. And they get instant access to this thing and they don't have to worry about lugging it around anywhere. It's optimized for any device. And so they can do what they need to do wherever they're at, no matter their circumstances. And that makes me really, really happy.
1: They're really good even as employees, recognizing that we're yeah. all, all going through our oh, own gosh. journeys and they're they're gonna accommodate you.
2: Yeah. And yeah. And they are they're very they're kind in general and really, really supportive, which is amazing. Um the first time I wrote a textbook for you, I think it was, was it the Vedanta one? Yeah, I think it was the Vedanta one that I wrote first. Um and I found out about it simply because I had been I'd been writing it just in PDF form because I was so tired of the Vedento textbooks mm. and I was just trying to get it to the students and there was no editing involved. And so it was just my stream of consciousness and my dyslexia involved. And that was bad. But uh, actually, DRL was on campus and um, they came to talk to me and just say, hey, you know, this is what we do. And I was like, ooh, can you do anything with this ridiculous pile of things I have? And they're like. <laughs> Yes. yes, we have editors to fix mm-hmm. the spelling. <laughs> Fantastic. And so that's how I got to know them. And then, and then that was a, a fast turnaround process, but I was able to tell, you know, the editor I was working with, I said, here's the thing, you know, it's the middle of the semester. I'm, um, scattered everywhere. I am not going to sit down and do anything unless I have a deadline. That's the ADHD again. You know, I, I work on deadlines and if, because they were being very kind, like get it done when you do, and I'm like, oh, so never is what like, <laughs> That's no. how my brain just heard that. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, you know, I tell the editor, I'm like, hey, you know, I need deadlines, and oh man, she was a deadline fiend, <laughs> and it would be like, we are meeting on Monday. This is what I expect done, and then the one time I missed it, I was in trouble. Like it was terrifying. On that, I am very disappointed in you. Oh my god, I will never disappoint you The editor was. I mean, yeah, I'm going to go back there and find out. out. <laughs> he was the worst, best thing on earth. And so then I was like, okay, cause then I got stuff done and it was great. And the students loved it and it worked so seamlessly with my class and I loved it. And so then when, um, I want to do this forensic science one, I called them up and I said, Hey, I want to do this. And they were, uh, you know, a little nervous, like, well, how much do you have written? Cause they don't want me coming in and be like, nothing. Can you publish it tomorrow? They're so good at asking the right questions. Like, you know, that they're used to dealing with people like me. And so <laughs> I was like, well, I have, you know, 30 chapters and they're like, oh, okay, great. What deadlines do you want? And what are we going to do? And then when I went and just locked myself away to finish everything. Uh I said, this is what I'm doing. And they're like, okay, you call us. We won't bother you for this amount of time. But the the deadline that you set for yourself, we are on you. And they were. It was amazing. And so yeah, it was the support was just absolutely incredible. And the ridiculous covers because they'd be like, well, what do you want? And they would usually put together something pretty basic. Like what do you think? I'm like, well, that's what I'm thinking. They're like, <laughs> okay. And they come back with these great Photoshop, beautiful ideas like so good and yeah like the the forensic one is little sherlock holmes bloodhound and oh so perfect so i had no idea and i was like i don't know make it funny and adorable and i like animals go and that's what they came up with and it was freaking perfect and then for the uh, uh Vedanta one it's a dog with a caterpillar on it on his head and that makes me laugh every time I framed the the photo and put it on my wall at my office because I like it so much it's just so good and yeah so just the amount of support on the stuff that I don't know how to do is absolutely incredible and then when I have an idea as ridiculous as it may be I'll call up and we'll make it work and so that has been the best thing on earth because I know some of these ideas are just out of left field and they're (laughs) like you want to do okay we'll call you back let me go talk to somebody and see if that's possible <laughs> and then it is magically in ways I never thought so that's pretty cool <laughs> gonna say, it's usually yeah. possible
0: I, gonna say. I know it's been great no, this no, may be the first like one to ask us if we can so yeah. and <laughs> but that's <laughs> I I
2: I integrated my lab book into my vet into one, and there's a bunch of dichotomous keys on identifying stuff with a bunch of links, a bunch of different places, and I wanted it interactive. And I went, I don't know if this is possible, but can you? And within a week, it was done, and it was beautiful, and yeah, it was absolutely perfect. And then because I'm neat, there's so there's typos and things in there that um, I miss, and if the editors miss it because it's content as opposed to you know just spelling. That's a problem, but we have this thing set up where I give my students extra credit for finding mistakes in the textbook and they fill out a form and then I just send that form to the editors to fix. And so that has been wonderful. They're like, here's how we want you to send it. Great, I'll have my students fill it out. That's a that's a great idea. <laughs> because yeah, sometimes I, I don't know. Oh, God.
0: Okay. At the end of all of our episodes, we like to do a segment called You're Wrong. it's it's not that you're wrong but it's everyone else that's wrong (laughs) (laughs) this is your opportunity to kind of rant and explain any misconception or you know miss bugs are not gross bugs are the best (laughs) Uh, and
2: we get a lot I get a lot of people who are scared of insects for some reason or another or they only like butterflies butterflies are boring i mean they're pretty it's fine (laughs) but the pretty bugs are usually the ones that are not even close to being interesting Um, insects rule the world one they are freaking everywhere they've been here long before all of us they will be here long after we're all gone and they do absolutely everything in the world they're so good 99.99% of the time, they're not trying to hurt you in any way, including the bees or the wasps or whatever. You just let them be. And they're fine. Uh, If you figure out a way to make it more annoying to be near you than away from you, then you don't even get ants in your house. And so that's how we do pest control in this household. But they're the absolute best. And maggots are the cutest. Don't come at me. They are so adorable. They can't bite you. They don't have claws. They're just little bags of guts that want cuddles. Come on. Thank Another you so much. Words. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, we have fun uh-huh. too. It's an excellent Oh, uh, You get asking me things that I love, and then I mm-hmm. just talk forever. This is my dream.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let me know yeah. if
2: you need anything else from me, and I can't wait to hear it.
0: Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you. you. Have a great day. You too. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Adrian, for joining us on today's episode and for sharing your experience as a forensic entomologist and your knowledge of bugs. In any area of study, but especially in the sciences and forensic sciences, it is crucial to be able to teach students using the most up-to-date information. As research and our understanding of forensic entomology evolves, it's important that you're able to make rapid changes to your textbook to include those new methods, data, and case studies. It also shows a commitment to your students, ensuring that you include relevant and interesting topics in your textbook that will help them as scientists and professionals in their future careers.
1: Entomology is a window into a world most people ignore or fear or repulse by. But after this conversation, it's a world that feels so much closer and more relevant. Forensic entomology might not be CSI, but it comes with a duty to use methodology and research to bring justice to victims and to those in need of defense.
0: Can I Get a Retake is hosted by Michelle Maniman and Michaela Albee. The show is edited by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast was designed by Michelle Maneman. Our intro and outro music was created by Coma Media. If you enjoyed this episode
1: and you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. To join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Can I Get a Retake. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit GreatRiverlearning.com/slash podcast.